Hello and welcome to the Common Good Podcast. My name is Dan Dietrich. I'm your host today coming to you from South Bend, Indiana. We have a great show for you today. We have Dr. Obrey Hendricks. He's one of the foremost commentators on the intersection of religion and political economy in America. He is the most widely read and perhaps the most influential African-American biblical scholar writing today. Cornell West calls him one of the last few grand prophetic intellectuals. For today's show, Doug Padgett connected via Zoom to talk about Dr. Hendricks' new book, Christians Against Christianity, How Right-Wing Evangelicals Are Destroying Our Nation and Our Faith. Strong words, but in this case, I think they're warranted. Today's right-wing evangelical Christianity stands as the very antithesis of the message of Jesus Christ. In his book, Dr. Hendricks challenges right-wing evangelicals on the terrain of their own religious claims exposing the falsehoods, contradictions, and misuses of the Bible that are embedded in their rabid homophobia, their poorly veiled racism, and demonizing of immigrants and Muslims, and their ungodly alliance with big business against the interests of American workers. It's a fascinating conversation. Dr. Hendricks is a living legend. So grateful that he spent some time with us. Let's get into the interview. All right. Well, let's start. Let's start with that. This being a second career for you, uh, Dr. Hendricks, you, um, you know, you're a Princeton graduate and then went off and worked on Wall Street, sort of on that pathway that so many people desire to, to, to be on. No, actually, I graduated from Rutgers oh. undergrad. OK. Princeton was your religious education side. Yeah, I went to Princeton Seminary. Then I went to Princeton University in religion department to get a Ph.D., you know, but um, came out of Rutgers. Interesting story. I, I grew up. In, in Newark and East Orange, but I, I grew up in the um, Black Cultural Nationalist movement in Newark as a teenager, right? We were the guys who wore dashikis and big afros, so big, you slam the door, catch your hair in it, you know, like that kind of thing. And, um, but I, you know, in that, I, I mean, that I sort of hold, honed my social conscious, conscious, consciousness and um, gave me a sense of what it meant to be really committed hmm. to uh, a, a cause. Um, I ended up uh, eventually on Wall Street, which is a strange thing going from a black nationalist soldier to Wall Street. I should because, say. Uh, well, you know, I, I, in my generation, you know, we were, uh, got to remember that was my parents' generation was the pre-civil rights movement uh, generation. Um, I, you know, was, spent my youth in it. And at that time, uh, the aspirations of black folks, um, many were that, their children will grow up to be a, a credit to the race, you know, um, and uh, that meant a white collar professional who could really uh, make some contributions to the community. So I'm like, yeah, yeah. You know, we talked about me being a lawyer or a doctor or growing up, but, you know, law school are too many words and a doctor, man, I'm too squeamish for blood. So <laughs> and at that time, Wall Street was like um, the wild, wild west, you know, in the mid 70s. So um, it took me about a year to get to, to get hired. You know, um, it was hard for a black guy to get hired those days on, on, on Wall Street. But that's what I did. I was there for eight years. And it, um, it, it was very when I realized how spiritually debilitating it was, mm. um, I left and uh, eventually ended up in seminary. I was director of economic development for a small municipality first. Ended up in seminary. Then uh, one of my professors, you know, realized I had given a scholarship and pressed me to go to apply to Princeton University. I didn't realize that Princeton University was the hardest religion department in the country to get into at that time. 
Um, if I had known, I wouldn't have applied. But, you know, I went and met John Gager, who became uh, he and Elaine Pables, became my advisor. Wow. John Gager had been a uh, freedom rider. Uh, so? time at Parch- I didn't know that. At time at Parchment, Parchment Farm. And I'm like, wow, man, maybe I can fit in here. And I had done well academically. And next thing I knew, I was accepted. And uh, they, that's I'm the monster they created. So tell me about this, uh, what, what it means to have been part of the, what would you call it, the Black Nationalist uh, movement? Yeah. I mean, when I was yeah. a child growing up in, in Minnesota, like in the early 70s, that's a world that I saw on television and in kind of popular culture and sort of the Black uh, African movement. And it was very inspiring, you know, for some kid living in an apartment complex, you know, outside of Minneapolis, mm-hmm. the world seemed pretty small, but my sister lived in New York. And so I knew about it um, and, and saw that. And, and it, it created this context of um, not only sort of a broader and other world, but it felt like to me that there were really taking seriously social uh, issues and asking the question, what kind of a country is this and who gets to decide? Yeah. Is that how you sort of how you saw it as, you know, somebody who was part of yeah. it? Or how did you engage in that world? Yeah, it was about, you know, questioning and, and uh, rejecting the status quo, you know, clearly. And, uh, um, you know, we had a romanticized mm-hmm. vision of, uh, of what liberation would, would, would be like. Um, but what was important really was the, um, you know, the political and the ethical um, uh, emphases of, of that movement. And it was really, it was about, it focused on um, uh, political liberation of uh, African-Americans, but it wasn't exclusionary, you know. Um, we had uh, uh, we had allies, you know, in, in various progressive um, white groups. So growing up, it, it, that was my formative thing. It, you know, it gave me... Um, uh, it was also very empowering. Um, and I saw folk who were, had dedicated their lives to the struggle, like Amiri Baraka. Mm. Uh, also, Baraka was my first, Amiri Baraka was my first intellectual inf- influence, um, uh, really, because um, one thing they had us do, we, we read incessantly, we read everything. And, and all us, we all thought we were uh, poets and intellectuals. Yeah, right. Yeah, bad poetry, brother. But um, <laughs> you know, but those kinds of sen- sensibilities sort of um, have, have have stuck with me. So you went on and and you you got degrees and you engaged and you've been an instructor and a teacher and a visiting professor and kind of making your your voice known. And then for some reason, uh, thankfully, you decide to write this book about the state of religion in America, the political social state, and really. You know, from the title of your book, uh, the the subtitle, "How Right Wing Evangelicals Are Destroying Our Nation and Our Faith," uh, that's a that's a that's a bold that's a bold statement. I mean, you know, uh, I was talking with our producer Dan before you came on, and you know, we said, "Yeah, it's a strong statement," and we both agree with it, right? As both people who come from the evangelical tradition, I was got into Christianity as a teenager, and the evangelicals were the ones who welcomed me in and there was a kind of 1980s openness evangelical movement that I just happened to slide slide into. Um, mm-hmm. So I've spent my adult life in, in and around trying to help that community find better paths forward. So what 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 brought you to decide you're going to turn your intellectual work and your life to, to this book, uh, Christians Against Christianity, How Right-Wing Evangelicals Are Destroying Our Nation and Our Faith? That's an important question. Well, you know, as a biblical scholar, I uh, let me just put it like this. 
I was so outraged, so chagrined and so outraged and so saddened by the way right-wing evangelicals so distorted the faith and so misused it and have so so weaponized the faith uh, to do the exact opposite that, Je- uh, that Jesus would have us do that um, I just, I felt that I, I had to, to do what I could. Mm-hmm. Also, because I'm a biblical scholar, my perspective is different than theologians, as you know. And so, you know, uh, I, I have the tools to engage their biblical claims um, in, on, on, uh, in, on various subjects and to debunk them. Mm-hmm. And so I felt the responsibility, you know, to do to do that. Um, and so, you know, it's I'd like to say it's a work of passion only, but it's a work of passion and 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 distinct anger and disdain for Donald Trump. Um, this walking, you know, embodiment of the seven deadly sins and uh, manifest evil. And I don't say that lightly, you know, he and his, uh, you know, court jester evangelicals. I mean, they're just they are everything that the gospel militates against. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, and so many people are being misled, their lives destroyed, their people being killed as a result and all that there. That I just, you know, I felt I had to do what I, I could do with, to, to make my contribution in that fight against it. And your, your book is, is well, um, like it's well studied and well documented and well argued. Um, for people that haven't seen the book yet, what's the essence of, of your argument? You know, the, the, obviously the title is provocative. It's meant to be um, Christians Against Christianity. You're not advocating in that title that you're a Christian who's against Christianity. You're suggesting that there's Christians whose very way of living and being and, and expressing themselves seems to be so counter to the Christian, to the Christianity that they, that they confess. Um, but, but what is the, the, the heart of, of, your, of your argument for people that haven't had a chance to read the book yet? My intent was to, um, as I said, to clarify and debunk and demystify and rescue folk uh, from the kinds of lies and misrepresentations of the faith that are destroying the faith and, and, and destroying the body politic, mm-hmm. right? And, and the purpose of the book is not just to put people down. It's not to put people down. It's it's to it's against certain kinds of ideas, but but the purpose is to try to to free people from the overlay of all these lies that stand in the way of us being a more loving and cohesive mm-hmm. society. Also, what I want, uh, what was very important to me, was to try to point to the ethical core of the gospel. You know, um, that's because folk talk about the gospel a lot of ways, but we don't really talk about what is the core of the gospel unless folk will say, well, it's John 3.16. Well, no, Jesus did not say that. Jesus said that the most important commandment, uh, commandments, love your neighbor. I mean, uh, love your Lord, your God, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? Um, and in, when we talk about social terms and ethical terms, love your neighbor as yourself, then is the most important commandment and with all the implications of that 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 um implies uh egalitarian economics right it uh um you love your neighbor as yourself you want the same rights the same freedoms the same resources the same access to all the good things of life for your neighbor as you want for yourself right that has profound Hmm. economic social and political connotations that's he said. That's the first commandment. Then also, what is the mode of 
of, of judgment that Jesus gives us by which we will be judged by God and by which we should judge ourselves and the actions of others uh, by extension. And that is clear. It's Matthew 25, 31 through 46, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's the paramount mode of judgment. How, how you have treated these, you have demonstrated your faith or treated God. Yes. As you've treated the least of these, you have treated me, or as you have not treated, as you not have not done to the least of these, you have not done to me. What are we supposed to do is make sure that each other um, have decent living condition. They have the kinds of resources that they need. In other words, we're judged by how we treat others in their time of need, how we look at and, and uh, try to serve the common good. And you put those two together. I mean, that mm-hmm. is the core of, of, of the gospel, is it not? Yeah. And it's, it's an ethical focus, not a doctrinal focus, because Jesus said very little, almost nothing about what we should believe. He gave us no new doctrines, but he did spend all this time telling us how we should live and treat one another. And that's, I mean, and, and so I wanted to really try to refocus us mm-hmm. on that, because I think that it's almost like it's it's a return to the gospel itself, which is what we don't do a lot of. And moreover, it's Paul who many Christians understand Jesus or the gospel through the prism of Paul rather than the other way around. Yeah. So yeah. I wanted to, to try to make that that clear, try to make that contribution. It, it feels like that you as a biblical scholar are, are just really... Um not going to allow a whole tradition like evangelicalism or right-wing versions of evangelicalism, or I might even say the Trumpist version of the right-wing of evangelicalism, which is this little subset, but maybe the most passionate. As a biblical scholar, you're not going to tolerate those folks saying, well, we do all of this because the Bible commands us, demands us, and leads us to it. You're trying to say, look, you can make your argument about how you want to be and how you want your church or your political life to be, but you don't get to you don't get a pass on using the Bible as your as your rationale for that. Do, do I have that sort of right that that you're? No, you have that absolutely right, um, and that's why when I say uh, speak about a core of the gospel, speaking of it in, in the sense of a prism through which all other biblical understandings should be refracted. So you want to say, well, I'm going, I'm going according to the Bible. Well, is this consistent with what Jesus said is the primary commandment in, in, in social terms in the world? Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, if not, then you have to revisit that or set it aside. Because as we know there, I mean, the Bible came through human hands. So there are contradictions there. Um, that's what we don't see. Well, a lot in Christendom, but certainly not on the right wing. And by the way, when I I, I specifically talk about right wing evangelicals and not just evangelicals, because they are very progressive, um, even left wing evangelicals. But um, so the right wing, I never hear them talk about love at all. Right. Right. Um, They don't talk about justice unless it's just us looking out for just us. Those who feel uh, who think like we do and, and largely those who look like like we do. And that has to be exposed. A, a lot of people don't know any better. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, so you, we have these folks that say that they're Bible way, they're Bible way Christians. Well, take John MacArthur, as I talk about in the book, right? He's a big shot, right wing evangelical, 150 books. I think they said he's read, he's 
written million seller books. He's uh, he's a big deal. This guy doesn't understand Diddley, man. I mean, when it comes down to the basis, how can you <laughs> possibly say that social justice is a heresy? Fighting mm-hmm. for justice in society for all God's children is a heresy. They don't. But so but many people listen to these guys. So, you know, and, and from our side, we're not working hard enough to try to counter. Yeah. Well, and, those and look, I, there's something what I really appreciate about your book is because um, I come from the same sort of vantage point that I feel like your book is coming from. And that is to say, look, for people who believe that the that the Bible is important in their life, right? It's somehow it's an authority or it's a, it has a claim on their life. That's an advantage for people who think about the world the way we do with justice and all. Like we should use it so many times. What I think progressive uh, Christian people and other progressives' response is to people who say, "Well, the biblical command is you know this and that." To say, "Hey, you can't use the Bible. Like just skip it." And when we do that, rather than saying, "Okay, if you want to." use the Bible as, as a part of your, uh, your rationale, we can have a great conversation about that. When we just set it aside, we actually seed all of that community who feels like they want the Bible to be still a part of their life and faith. It just turns it over into the hands of these other people. Do you yeah. feel like there's a need for progressive or justice oriented or more, maybe we'd call more full gospel, uh, kinds of, uh, of, Christian people of faith to find their own new and fresh relationship with the Bible? Do you think that's an important part of the work that we have to do? Yeah, yeah, it's an important part of the work. And I think the reason I stress ethics, though, is that that's the ground on which we all can stand mm-hmm. and find common ground, right? Not just within Christendom, but with other, you know, yeah. religious traditions. And so um, um, that's really what I, 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 I try to I try to stress, you know, because on the left, folk on the left seem skittish about, for obvious reasons, about using the Bible. They don't want to sound like Bible thumpers and uh, or like folk who aren't really thinking for themselves, you know, mm-hmm. and who are just quoting the Bible. And also, we're largely, because that attitude uh, on the on the left, we don't know the Bible as well. Mm-hmm. We're not as familiar and comfortable with it as they are on the right who, you know, live live it on all the time. And so on one hand, I would say that we need to have, if we take the biblical witness seriously, um, we should spend more time with the Bible. Or even if we want to understand the frame in which right-wingers think and speak, we must also understand the, the Bible for that reason as well. But more importantly, if we boil it down and look at the ethical underpinnings, which is why I sort of stress that in, yeah. in, in the book, um, and I stressed it in my book, The Politics of Jesus, as, as, as well. If we look at those ethical underpinnings, we can share that together because justice, this notion of justice um, from the, uh, the biblical notion of justice is the same. It per, it's, that's the notion of justice we use in the Euro in the Euro West, I mean, throughout, and, and, and even in jurisprudence, right? And so I have a, a, a dear buddy I grew up with who claims he's an atheist. He's really more of an agnostic, but um, he's talking about throw the Bible out. The Bible is ridiculous and whatever. I said, yeah, but, you know, you believe in justice? Of course I believe in justice. So where do you think your notion of justice comes from? I can show you. It's an eighth, it's eighth century 
prophets, right? And, and justice pervades, um, the term pervades the Bible. And so that's what I'm saying. Stand yeah. on that ethical ground. We can, and, you know, we don't, and, and so, and that gives us less rooms, room for division. Yeah, that's really well said. And, you know, your, your book, The Politics of Jesus was powerful for me. It's just, an, it has, has a great amount of influence and it really raises this, I think, important question that can be helpful for a lot of people who haven't yet thought about sort of their, their core understanding of when we call for justice in our society, we then have to ask ourselves, like, which part of our society is responsible to mitigate that justice, right? And the, one of the arguments that conservatives make and that the right wing of the, of the evangelical and charismatic Pentecostal traditions latch onto is they'll say, absolutely, we should pursue justice. But we shouldn't ask the government to do that. If we're going to care for the least of these, we as the church should do it. This is the big argument, right? I've talked right. to thousands of leaders, and right. they've all said the same thing. Yes, we're for justice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, as a liberal, you think the government should do it, and us as biblical conservatives think that that should be done through other means. And and this is a big question in, in a democratic society of a pluralistic culture like we have. Do you have thoughts on how to help people figure out what should be done through nonprofit religious organizations as justice efforts and what should be done through the mandates that can come through the government because government's a particular thing that feels like it's at the essence of this just first divide that happens between the the right wing and the not right wing. There there are two parts to that. One, One is that there is this misunderstanding that the Bible says that those who are in positions of governance and influence and I influence that they do not have a responsibility to look out. This it's well, like it's a libertarian Bible, right? You don't have yeah. a responsibility to look out for other folk. And that's just not true. When you look throughout the Bible, kings and princes, those who are in positions of governance, and even the wealthy, are told again and again, commanded again and again that they have a responsibility to work for justice for the poor, to make sure that those who are in need are looked out for. And by the way, when I mention justice, because there's, you know, libertarian justice, there's utilitarian justice. We're talking about egalitarian justice. How mm. do we know that? Because because Jesus says, well, Leviticus says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's egalitarian. You want the same things for your neighbors as you want for yourself. That's egalitarian. You you know you you um uh, uh you apply that to this notion of justice. Then it's egalitarian justice. So. I just wanted to make that point. The other, the so they they have this misunderstanding. They don't understand, like in in uh, Psalm seventy two, uh, which we uh, understand as an, an inauguration psalm for uh, inauguration yeah. of a king. It talks about the responsibility of the king to do justice and righteousness for the poor. Uh, on the other hand, churches do have a responsibility to try to struggle for a just and healthy and and, and loving world, and. Um, um, and 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 that is not just to do charity, but to work about against systemic injustice, right? To work to the very least, um, insist upon and inspire those who, who represent us to work for just policies and institutions. So, I mean, on the, the right wing is, is right. Churches have a responsibility. Well, most of them don't even recognize a responsibility. But churches do have a responsibility, but it's not 
their primary responsibility to be the social safety net of, of society. Yeah. Yep. We're told that it is those who are in power, who have who have the resources uh, and the power and the backing of the state uh, to do it. And I, I try to show that in the book in the numerous numerous times the Bible tells us that. Yeah, and you, re- and you really do it well, and I'd commend it to anyone who's wrestling with this, with this idea. You know, in, in the New Testament, you have this classic story that so many people know of the, of the Good Samaritan, and that Good Samaritan narrative is about somebody who's in a culturally different space, caring for someone who's, who's become vulnerable and takes their own resources and cares for the person, and that one doing the good is a Samaritan, and Jesus makes this big contrast to the Jewish people who look down on the Samaritans, that the one you think is the evildoer is actually the one doing good, it's supposed to create this mental conflict that they've been living in. But this whole question came because Jesus, as, as you say, is in this teaching moment and says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And then people say, but who's my neighbor? Like to whom am I responsible? And then, so that good Samaritan narrative is to respond to this question Mm -hmm. of who is my neighbor. Where I'm going Mm -hmm. with this is it, it kind of reminds me that this is one of the, this, who is my neighbor is an evergreen question. Like it comes up with every generation, maybe with each person time and time again, we shouldn't just feel like, well, we've answered that question long ago. I feel like that's still a piece that the Jesus tradition wants to insert into our human relationships, which is, is it possible that your obligation goes further to other human beings than you currently think? And that yeah. feels like it's the power of that story as opposed to, I don't know, pay for their wounds and put them in a hotel and get them a doctor and cross cultural boundaries. It's, it's yeah. also asking, can you expand your notion? And this has been something that kind of has ebbed and flowed in our society. And it feels like we're back in a moment where a yeah. whole lot of religious people feel like their obligation is to a smaller group of humanity than to a larger group of humanity. And for some reason, the right wing of the religious movement, Christian religious movements in America have just built a wall around where their obligation goes and, and how far it goes. And so I'm just wondering what, about your, your thoughts on all that. Yeah. Well, part of the problem is notions of Christian nationalism and uh, exclusionary notions of white supremacy. I mean, you know, mainstream Christianity is, 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 is shot through with them, right? I mean, historically. So mainstream Christianity has never really had an expansive vision of, of, of the neighbor, has it? <laughs> That's right. I mean, look, they've mistreated everybody, man. I mean, you know, I mean, even in the history of this country, immigrant Irish and Italians weren't considered, you know, white, weren't accepted as, as, as by white supremacy, right? And it's also part of that libertarian tradition where we don't have any responsibility to anyone but ourselves. Yeah. Like the Good Samaritan is a sucker to the libertarians, you know? Um, it's like, you know, you and remember, libertarianism says you can take care of people if you want to, but you don't have a responsibility to do that. And so American Christianity has always been tribal, I think. It's, it's always been exclusionary and it's always been oppositional to a great extent it, it's never really been loving and that's the, the irony because so much of early evangelicalism did strive to do that to work across those boundaries right i mean i'm always reminded that um, the most important most abolitionist slavery abolitionists were evangelicals the institutional church movement right uh mm-hmm. 
what's the woman's name? Adams in Chicago and all those folk who built these institutions to help folk. Those evangelicals, right? I mean, um, there were evangelicals who, who were strong critics of capitalism and strong supporters of unions. Well, man, forget that now. You know, Billy Graham said there'd be no snakes or unions in heaven. Like, you know. <laughs> is that right? I didn't know Billy Graham was Billy Graham an anti-union guy. I, yeah, oh, yeah, I, 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 I quote that in the book. Yeah, my chapter on unions. It's 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 sad, man. You know, what what, what was the rationale for, for that? I'm sorry, I haven't read that part of the book. What was the rationale for uh, evangelicals saying that you uh, employees organizing in unions so that they have voice uh, that's equal to their their bosses and labor what what would be their rationale for for that just that anti-communist anti-socialist movement of the 50s and 60s yeah you know the the, the, um the american liberty league right of the the 30s the dupont brothers right got together to fight against fdr's change of of uh, governmental philosophy from laissez-faire like we don't have a responsibility to we do have a responsibility Mm -hmm. to help the least of these. And, you know, they got together and because that threatened their preeminence and their wealth, uh, they got together to fight it. They use socialism. Yeah. Well, the fear about the Bolsheviks, they use that against every every kind of policy that was to help the people. And unions were a big threat to them. Right. And the name of that chapter, of course, is the unholy alliance between right wing evangelicals and big business. Right wing evangelicalism has supported big business hand in glove since the 20s. And unions are villains. They are taking away the freedom of uh, of capitalists to be able to do what they want to do and to make a living. And I mean, it's it's really it's really sad. I mean, the 14th Amendment was even uh, misapplied. Mm. You know, 14th Amendment was supposed to protect African-American who were free for, from slavery. And they changed, switched it up that it protected corporations. And they said corporations were persons, which is the most backward thing you can come up with. And even Jimmy Carter recently said, you know, this was the worst Supreme Court um, judgment ever. But all this to support big business. Mm -hmm. And the sad thing about it is that this militates against the interests of the average evangelical. Can I just share something? Yeah, I love it. This is from that, that chapter to show just how bad it is. One of the most striking examples of the unholy marriage between right-wing evangelicals and big business is found in the 1990 Christian, Coali- Christian Coalition Leadership Manual. The manual states that, quote, God establishes pattern for work, unquote, which it explains using four Bible passages instructing slaves to, obedi- to be obedient to their masters as a model for modern employer-employee uh, relations and w- includes this passage from First P- Peter: "Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all due respect." Blah blah blah. The manual explain goes on to explain with no sense of irony. "Quote: Of course, slavery was abolished in this country many years ago, so we must apply those pr- these principles to the way Americans work today." Oh my gosh! To employer employees and employers. Then it draws a conclusion that could have been written in feudal times. Quote, Christians have a responsibility to submit to the authority of their employers since they are designated as part of God's plan for the exercise of authority on earth. So, brother, 
<laughs> wow. Wow. That, that is a stunning, that's like the tobacco uh, papers being found, like saying, no, they, they really are saying your boss now has the authority given by God. And if you try to rise up to have better working conditions or pay, you are going against your employer and therefore against the authority of God. Yes, that's yes, yes. unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, but it, it's it's real. That's and that's what we're fighting against. And and of course, you know, Trump, the corporate thief and crook, he is. He's all about um, supporting, uh, yeah, you know, big business. So I mean, and and he is their hero. They even call him a messiah, right? Um, literally, they call him messiah, right? And, and talked about um, there one day there'd be a book of Trump in the Bible. So of course, that's their. You know, that's right up his alley, in their alley, to continue mm-hmm. to support a big business um, exploitation of workers. You know, I would imagine, don't jump into your brain back in, you know, 2000, early 2000s when you were writing the Politics of Jesus uh, book and doing all your work. Back then, I had a sense, as somebody who comes from the evangelical tradition, that evangelicalism and the kind of fundamentalism and the kind of anti-Roe versus Wade religious movements. I just thought all of that was on the decline. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, I was saying things 20 years ago that in 20 years, by 2020, you're not going to have a resurgent or powerful evangelical world that sort of exists now. This is on its final stages. It's on its last foot. All of that uh, turns out to be totally wrong. Maybe the opposite has happened. Somehow that group got together and, and came back with, with more power. And we used to talk about like, you know, the, the death rattle that a human being experiences in their final stage, sort of a surge of energy. And, but it's really at the final, you know, it's at the end. Did you think 15 years ago, 20 years ago, that you'd have to write a book like this, that you'd have to recount the power of these ridiculous statements written in 1990? Like, I, Mm-hmm. How did you think about it? And just sort of where's your head and heart on all of this now thinking this is mm-hmm. 2022 and we're having to deal with, you know, the ramifications of a religious mm-hmm. right influenced insurrection at the at the U.S. Capitol. And- who, who could have foreseen anything like that? I mean, uh, it's like some of the policies they're espousing go, uh, would take us back 60 years. Yeah, I mean, I never would have dreamed we've seen such resurgence of hatred and, and racial antipathy anymore like we'd seen in, in the past. I mean, but uh, clearly it was in the Pandora's box. And what we all we needed is was one dedicated, totally corrupt agent of evil to open that Pandora's yeah. box. And that was that was Trump. And, you know, Trump has been an agent of evil in the sense that he apparently he has very self-consciously open this Pandora's box of, of, of hatred and evil and fascism um, uh, and just, just to serve his own evil, evil ends. And so, I mean, that's, that's, that's the way I see it now. And I, I truly believe that if we did not have a, a Trump in, in 2015, 2016, mm-hmm. that that box wouldn't have been open. It might not, it might have been gotten mm-hmm. open in the future. But things would be much better now. I mean, in so many ways, we'd have less people dead from COVID. Yeah. The economy would not be in the, in, uh, would not have gotten so bad if he had just acted like a decent human being. But think about it, brother. I don't get into all this metaphysical, uh, yeah. uh, supernatural stuff. But think about this. There's, there's something so evil about 
about this destructive, hateful person, it's almost like, as I write in the epilogue, it's like this spirit of Antichrist. I don't mean the beast from Revelation. That's not Antichrist. But the spirit of Antichrist, the spirit that uses and claims to represent the teachings of Jesus Christ, but uses them for its own evil ends um, to do the exact opposite of what Jesus would have us do. It's like, it's like we're in this kind of crazy moment where this spirit of Antichrist is, 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 is starting to, to, to permeate, you know, go through the society. I mean, it's, it's, I can't, it's hard to understand it any other way. I did. A, it's scary. I, it is scary. I mean, it, it, I agree with you. I've it's, it's caused me to rearrange my entire life and ministry and work yeah. and everything I do. I mean, it's just it's bonkers. And I, I did a podcast with a uh, with a somebody that I met just after Trump was elected, who is a, another pastor and a Trump supporter, and we called it untrumped. And for seven weeks in a row, for an hour live in a Zoom conversation like this, we talked uh, about how he could support Trump and he wanted to know how I couldn't. And mm. mostly, a lot of our great conversation happened when we were broadcasting, but then we'd talk for another hour or so afterward. And that's when I really heard pieces of it. And he would say similar things. He, he would say, as somebody who's a strong supporter of Trump, he would say, look, um, I never thought the guy was going to get elected. Mm. And the same way you like, how did this happen? And his conclusion was, that shows that it's a work of God. And so many people that I've met over the, these last you know, four years believe that. They're like, it makes no sense. He should have never been the nominee, should have never been elected. This is proof of the claim of God on his life. Like when people say Messiah stuff and all this things that go on now with QAnon, he's going to be back in office. It's because they say he should have never been there in the first place. Like people like us look at it and say, something's really broken here. We've got to figure out how this happened. And they're like, how it happened? It's a miracle. That's how it happened. And it shows God's blessing on all. And they've doubled down. They've doubled down on this idea where now, whether it's anti-vaxxing or whatever, it all kind of gets put in the mix of, God is up to something and all of you shaking your heads. That's because you don't really understand how the spirit is working in the world. And that's a piece that to me, that just drives me out of my mind. Like you yes, cannot brother. give this, this over to that. I, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. No, no, I'm, I'm I, brother. I'm with you on that. But you know, the question I would ask him is, well, you know, did God put Hitler uh, in, in office? He, Hitler, you know, had been, have been knocked down. I mean, he ends up running the country. I mean, was he ordained by God? You know, it's 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 crazy. Um, and they don't look at how uh, throughout history, um, you know, uh, Machiavellian folk and mm -hmm. folk who have who have absolutely no integrity at all, how they can how how they can um, uh, and and folk who are good common how they can do this. He's just a con man liar, um, who um. Uh, who appealed to the to the very worst in in America, and that got him in. And he appealed to racism about Obama. Um, he lied about how rich he is. You know, um, his father only loaned him a million dollars. We know that now that his father um, gave him something like forty million dollars, which is a whole lot more now than it was then. And you know, his net worth is is uh, you know is is less now than it would have been if he just put the money in the. In a savings account, <laughs> a savings account, right? Um, 
it's terrible. It's it's just terrible. It's just you know, it's it's well documented that um, and and I've watched the clips that he went to an evangelical college in Iowa, um, mm-hmm. and that's where he, you know, famously said the lots of lots of things like I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue, and and at that meeting he he says to the evangelicals, I said, look, I know you're not my kind of people, and I'm not your kind of person. I know you have lots of reasons to not trust me. But let me tell you this, you vote for me, you will have power. Yeah. If I'm in office, I'm taking you with me. And, and my contention is that evangelical voters, maybe like a lot of people, but especially evangelicals, don't need their politicians to be like them, but mm-hmm. they really do want their politicians to like them. And mm. he said, I like you and I'll take you with me and you will have power. And this is the deal. Now mm-hmm. in our, the tradition, you know, the Christian tradition is like, yeah, that's called a temptation. You know, that's like reading the temptation narrative and having wow. Jesus be like, oh, yeah. I, get the, I get all the kingdoms of the world. I'll take that deal. Like, yeah. You, yeah. this was, it felt to me, as someone who's close to that tradition, and I know he was speaking to people that, you know, just like me, saying, I've got a deal for you. And mm-hmm. so many people said, and lots of famous people, you write about them in your book, they said, we'll take that deal because what we really want is political power. And then at the end of it all, they end up with three Supreme Court justices, which for a lot of them, that's all they ever wanted. They didn't want a president. They wanted a justice. They wanted two. They got three. So, well, you and I, you know, say the things that we need to rightly say. And boy, these folks are just saying to themselves, worked out. I mean, it, it in the long yeah. run, yeah, he's a bad guy. Yeah, he didn't do the right things. Yeah, he led an insurrection. God is using him. <laughs> but in the end, we got it. And and that's a that's a thing. Also, I think that the that the Christian tradition provides us a response to right. Like that's called trading your birthright for a bowl of porridge, right? That's wow. that's like like there's whole there's whole narratives about swapping out something of value for something that was sort of worthless. Now yeah. they they would say you know that they got something of, of great value and a lot of power and all the rest of it. But do do you have any thoughts about that? Because I think if we continue to to take this group of voters and people and just keep them away from other political imaginations because we basically say you're charlatan he's a charlatan and you're a charlatan and everybody's everybody's mm-hmm. a problem like i just think that's not going to get us anywhere so I, I i don't know what your thoughts are on no uh, you're absolutely right well a couple well let me speak to that i am um, i think you're right you mentioned earlier about being able to speak in their frame we have to try to bridge the gap but i think it's important to recognize that Trump appealed to many people because they realized that he hated and disdained the same people that they do. They're not there out of goodwill. And, you know, reason is not going to change them, you know. Um, Secondly, many of these folks, because the shape of their Christianity is determined by how congruent it is with their own interests, Mm. these folk are more ideological Christians than Christians of, of, of biblical faith. You know, it's it's whatever that serves their interests, they will do, and they don't care. So, so I I, I cite in the book um, a poll. I think it's a PRI poll. It's a Pew poll, rather, mm-hmm. that says, "Ask folk how much did the Bible have to do with their attitude toward immigrants?" And majority of them said these right wing evangelicals said, "You know, they don't. The Bible has nothing to do with it. They don't. They don't care yeah. what the Bible says. They are going to mistreat immigrants however they feel." So these folk, it's not about what the Bible says. It's not about love. 
It's not about love your neighbor. It's not about community. It's not about the common good. It's about just us, not justice, just us. And it's about what serves our interests. And I think once we realize that, Mm -hmm. I think that dictates a certain two-pronged approach. One is that the right wing is not coming toward you and me. We're going to have to move toward them. And Mm -hmm. I think the only way we can do that is to try to talk about the biblical text itself. Um, what does it mean to love our neighbors as so? What's Matthew 25 about? Things like that. Yeah. And give them the benefit of the doubt to begin with, that they are sincere. They're just sincerely wrong uh, un- until they prove themselves to be insincere. Yeah, we, we, we use this passage out of Philippians, uh, you know, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others before yourself. Like, that, like if you're a biblical sort of like that, that works, right? And, you know, that, that faith, hope, and love are the three things that are going to remain after all this. And the greatest of these is love. Yeah. And yeah. But the thing that gets me about it is so many people feel like, well, I think all of us have a tendency to see ourselves as the as the hero in the story, we're always the good yeah. guy or gal in the story, you know, and yeah. people are like, no, th- this is the more loving way, you know, <laughs> somehow it's when I watch the, the video of those insurrectionists being in the Senate dais and praying in the Senate dais. I don't know if you've seen that video, Yeah, but, but they're praying in G- a, a kind of prayer that, you know, is familiar to people who've been in, in Christian religious traditions. Like, I know that accent. I know that wording and that phrase. I know exactly how, where that comes from. That's my tradition. Those mm-hmm. people are, they're praying in my way in there and I know who they are. And they saw themselves as the good guys. Uh, it's, it's just one of these dilemmas that is... Um, it's really hard to, to get to, right? Where somehow the edict of put others before yourself, they're like, well, that's exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> and I don't know. It's it's the part that, yeah. I guess it's the preacher and all of us that, you know, we watch people at our churches and then they leave and seeming have no connection between the things we talk about here and the way we live, that that kind of frustration that is, yeah. is, is visited yeah. on religious yeah. leaders all the time. I think a lot has to do with the fact that many churches, many churches stress an amorphous faith, but more importantly, they stress doctrine and, and confession. Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your mm-hmm. Lord and Savior? Yes, I have. All right, good. Have a good day. I mean, it's it, it, and they don't tie it to ethical behavior yeah. at all. And, you know, and and to the extent that they talk about morality, it's about personal piety alone and not the not social morality. Um, you know, it's 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 not just a failure of Christian imagination; it's a, a failure of Christian appropriation, a, a Christian mm. appropriation appropriation of the Bible, and taking the Bible as seriously as it should be should be taken. And and it's part of our tradition. Listen, Muslims study the study the Quran all the time um, uh, in the Jewish tradition. The tradition study is all the time, right? Um, right? They go to Hebrew school every Saturday, and these children. I have friends who, I have friends who's a Hebrew Bible scholar, and man, you know, he can read Hebrew so well it's ridiculous because he's been doing it since a child. What do we have in, in, in Christendom? Well, you go to church, you might have a prayer meeting, and you might have Bible study for an hour, but usually it's not that deep, right? And um, uh, and and so 
we rely on the preaching moment much too much for our information and don't and we don't get much out of it at, at all. So, I mean, there's this deep problem in Christendom that really yeah. um, that, that really leaves room um, for for all of these uh, these these transgressions and the, these distortions and this acting out and mistreatment. Of human beings. Your uh, your book uh, remind people it's called Christians Against Christianity: How Right Wing Evangelicals Are Destroying a, a Nation and, and a Faith. Um, how, how has it been received? For uh, what what's what's what stories have you heard about people who have um, benefited from the book? Most of the responses I've gotten have been, I mean, overwhelmingly appreciative and and supportive. Well, I mean, I've gotten some hate, you know, sure, email stuff like that, but. But the criticisms I've gotten have never been substantive. Yeah, I mean it's it's uh, this is a hateful book. Yeah, okay, tell me how it doesn't it doesn't really talk about the Bible. Well, come on, baby, that's you know it's it's all about the Bible. <laughs> you know, um, the, the 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 point is I don't know that they found a way to come at to come at me at me yet because I work very hard to be biblically and con- based and and you know and uh, and and fully contextualized. With, with the Bible and to approach it with uh, integrity. And, um, uh, and you know, they, 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 what it shows me, they don't know enough about the biblical tradition um, to come, to come at me. But it also means that a, a lot of them are not, their faith is not well informed. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's formed by, uh, by the things that, and the prejudices that they hear and the biases they hear. Um, and some of the stuff they believe in is, is, is that's in the Bible isn't even in there. Yeah, right. It's a failing of the church writ large, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we've not done a good job of, uh, of teaching folk. Um, we've, we've indoctrinated them, not you and me, hopefully, but, um, yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, we indoctrinate them doctrinally. You know? Well, well, the th- one of the things I appreciate is that inside the religious tradition, it's easy for a lot of us to want us, uh, make a distinction between us and the others, right? We can slice that prosciutto pretty thin, right? To sort of, yeah. and you're saying, hey, rest of the religious community, including right-wing evangelicals, we need to talk about this. I'm not just going to ignore it and push you off. You know, this is something that those of us who watch radicalization happen in any parts of our society, say to any of the other groups that are not part of the radicalizing element, why don't you do something about it in your own community, right? We say this all the time, say it to people in Hollywood and in politics and other religious traditions, you know, you have to take this on yourselves and, and that's what you're doing. I know some people might want to say, oh, this is dividing the church and you're saying these are the good guys and these are the bad guys. I didn't read it that way. I read it as your work as, um, what we need to do is is speak up about this thing that we also are a part of, which is the religious subculture in the United States, because it actually has consequence on society. You know, yeah. I, I'm, I'm critiqued all the time for people being like, I, I thought you were like a preacher and like a church planter. <laughs> and like, what, what are you doing monkeying around with, with, with all of this? It kind of has nothing to do with it. And you're like, well, it became a public health problem and it became a, you know, like the, now it's, you're, you're compelled, like finding that person on the side of the road. It's a Samaritan experience, a good Samaritan experience. And so yeah. I, I just thank you so much for, for the work you're doing and being willing to um, 
put in the work to say, this is the alternative that can exist. If you, if you care about a biblical understanding of your faith, here's an alternative way of, of reading it. And I hope people, yeah. uh, you know, that are, that are so easily, um, uh, fed on, you know, on the, the hyper right and the, the right wing side of, of our Christianity will take a, take a read of it. Yeah, brother, why, if I might just say, the Bible tells us that we should discern between the, the sheep and the goats. And we have to discern between not just what's biblical and, or unbiblical and anti-biblical, but, you know, what is right, what is wrong, what is evil, and what is good. And we have to start hmm. grudgingly um, and uh, with discernment use the E word, evil, because some of this is just evil. Mm-hmm. And we, we have to call it that. And all, so maybe folk will, will, will wake up. It's not just bad policy that children were locked in cages. It is evil. Yes. It's institutional evil. And then when you have someone who had no empathy, in fact, he, he supported it and, and, uh, and, and said that there was nothing wrong with that. We're talking about the orange-haired uh, demon uh, again. You know, then that, I mean, that's the kind of thing you have to say, but well, this is just a bridge too far. Yeah. This is just this is just just evil. I mean, we're just, but we don't do that. That's right. And we're too polite. It's like, no, man, this is evil. Now I'm going to make a categorical statement. Donald Trump is an evil actor. He has he he does no good thing for anyone. Never has. He's hurt more people than most people on on earth ever have. He's lied more than anybody who's ever been in the White House. That's it's documented well in the modern era anyway, but probably more than anyone else. And he's an, an evil actor because all he does is divide people, cause pain for his own gain. Uh, he's an agent of falsehood, and we need to start looking at him and then look at his followers and say, now this is what you are following. Yeah. And I, we say, well, um, well, he, you know, he, uh, he's against abortion. Well, Jesus didn't say that's the main thing. But if you're going to do that, admit it. You're going to follow an evil right. actor. We have to hold him accountable. That's just yeah. You're making the deal. Yeah, you're making the deal and saying yeah. it's it's worth it. You know, and um, you know, I, I think about back to that story when the child separation was the policy of the United States government, and it's still heartbreaking to me and so morally wrong. But to watch Jeff Session, then the Attorney General, come out and use the Bible, the Book of Romans, to say this is why it's justified. We're going to send a message to parents that your children will be treated like this because you cannot defy the rules and laws of this country. Or you're defying God. Th- that, that notion, I mean, it, so it wasn't just we're going to get these religious people to sort of go along. They started using biblical arguments in public statements for why they would support child separation. Like that was part of, to, to me, uh, the, the like you now have gone into an area that, first of all, that's just bad policymaking, that's just Christian nationalism at its core, That's and it's horrible exegesis, and it's just morally wrong. But this yeah. is the kind of thing that, that surrounded the Trump administration, and this is the part that's caused my blood to boil. It wasn't just Donald Trump alone. It was all the other Christians that were kind of put in these positions of power from, you know, Betsy DeVos in the, at the education level and Mike Pence as the vice president and Mike Pompeo and Flynn. Like these people were drawing up 
policies and approaches from a biblical perspective and Suppose. arguing for it mm-hmm. in a way that's that really demands a response like your book which says hey we're not going to we're not going to tolerate this like this is this is not a, a legitimate argument and if that argument's only coming from one side we're, we're we're really in trouble so i think that's why books like yours yeah. are so helpful to us yes yes i think you're Thank you're right, brother. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for the book. Thanks for taking so much time with us today uh, here on the podcast. Oh, it's, it's really a, really a gift. Pleasure. We really appreciate it. Yeah, I could go on with you, brother. I enjoyed talking. <laughs> well, let's, to you. let's do that sometime. I get to New York a yeah. lot. Let's find a way. And if you ever well, if you ever seriously. find yourself stuck at the Minneapolis airport, know you've got a friend just a few miles away. <laughs> thank you. I've been I've been trying to uh, avoid airports for a while the last year. So yeah, but right. really when you get to New York, give me a call, brother. We'll I'll get do together. It. I would love to do that. Okay, I'll be there in a couple of weeks, actually, so I'll be in touch. Okay. Okay. All the best to you, brother. Dr. Andrews, Thank thanks you. you so much. Okay. okay. Bye-bye. Oh, man, what a conversation. And, uh, again, thank you to Dr. Obrey for, for coming by and spending so much time with us. Uh, thanks to everyone in the chat. Super active chat. I can't get through all the comments, but appreciate all of you paying attention and investing in this conversation, even if you would disagree. Uh, I know this, uh, this triggered some defensive reactions from some, and I would just encourage you to lean into that a little bit and ask yourself why, why you get so defensive when these critiques come up. Uh, I know for me, when I was deconstructing the faith I was given and leaving right-wing evangelicalism, it's so easy to put up defensive walls anytime you hear a critique of your worldview. But if you just have patience and really let some of those critiques in and evaluate them for what they are, even after you get past the defensive mode, that's how we grow. That's how we change. And hopefully that's how we become more like Jesus. Because at the end of the day, for a lot of us, this isn't about right or left or being Democrat or Republican. It's about how do our politics help the most people in the way that Jesus intended. And so, as they pointed out in the interview, the thing for me was kids in cages. And if your first instinct when you hear the phrase kids in cages is to do a whataboutism, you know, what about Obama? What about things that happened before? I would encourage you to to poke that a little bit and ask yourself why why you can't just face that critique. Hopefully our politics move in a direction where we hold all elected officials accountable, right or left, Democrat, Republican. And as I mentioned in the comments, there's still kids being treated poorly at the border. There's still families being separated. And Biden has continued uh, like this stay, stay in Mexico policy that is damaging to families and puts them in a vulnerable position. And so in our work, we're calling on the Biden administration to do better. So maybe we can get on board and all demand better from our politicians that we treat the most vulnerable in our world with humanity and dignity. Christians Against Christianity is the name of the book. It's by Dr. Obery Hendricks Jr. You can pick it up wherever books are sold. Thanks again for everyone in the chats. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of lively chats today. So um, thank you for sticking around. We're back tomorrow with a great conversation about Christian nonviolence, people that take Jesus's call to nonviolence seriously, what that looks like, what it doesn't look like. Uh, so that's a great conversation happening tomorrow on the Vote Common Good podcast. Thanks for being with us. Have a good one.